Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple, folks. Today, I'm joined by Lee Phillips, who is a science writer and political journalist. His work has appeared in Nature, Science, The Guardian, and Jacobin, amongst many other outlets. His area of specialization includes climate change, energy systems, the earth system, microbiology, and I'm sure this is a short list. Lee is the author of two books, The People's Republic of Walmart and Austerity Ecology. Lee, welcome to Decouple. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be back. So Lee, I have to say, I was uh, when I was doing some research and just looking up your publications uh, for the little bio that we just did, I came across another book. Maybe you're aware of it, The Stripper's Guide to Looking oh. Good. <laughs> it keeps coming up. Uh, yeah, no, I am not that person. That's just a different Lee Phillips. You've um, never met them. You've uh, you've never they've never been invited to speak at a conference in your stead, I guess. Or, I, well, I mean, they're, they're jokes about it. Uh, like uh, every so often, when I am on podcasts or whatever, uh, people have made this discovery as well. So there's, there's some history there. Oh, sorry to, sorry to drag you back in. No, no, it's, it's all good. I find it absolutely hilarious that um, <laughs> a, uh, a, yeah, a stripper's guide to looking good in bed naked is, uh, you know, uh, authored by, by my doppelganger. <laughs> so Lee, we've, we've known each other for, I guess, about a year, a year and a half. Sure. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that you've been very influential in, in kind of my philosophy and politics and oh. those underlying the podcast. So it's it's awesome to finally have you on. It's it's been a bit tricky finding a mutual time, but but it's great to have you here. I'm happy to be here. So today, um, our plan is to talk um, a bit about a book that's been making waves recently, particularly kind of within the eco modernist sphere, and uh, that's Michael Schellenberger's new book, Apocalypse Never. So, you know, for those of you amongst our listeners who aren't aware of Michael Schellenberger, I'll try and kind of sum him up. Um, he's an environmentalist, author. He was a co-founder of the Breakthrough Institute, which is one of the major eco-modernist think tanks, and more recently founder of Environmental Progress, um, which is an organization, um, an environmental organization dedicated to promoting nuclear power. And I would say, you know, he has become one of the most, if not the most well-known public intellectuals arguing for nuclear power. You know, and he, he was um, very much kind of within the ranks of traditional environmentalism, you know, for quite some time, but I think definitely took a, a move towards eco-modernism. And in his most recent book, he's he stirred some major waves, particularly in his promotional efforts, where he's kind of penned articles professing to apologize on behalf of environmentalists for the climate scare. And, you know, I think his key messaging is sort of everything you, you thought you knew about environmentalism and climate change is wrong. I don't know if you've been keeping up with, with that too much, Lee, but what's, what's your take on Michael's apology and, and I guess some of the controversy he's been stirring up to perhaps publicize his book? Oh, gosh, where to begin? Yeah, so I think to some extent we need to separate that article, the, the, the famous, the infamous article where he apologizes on behalf of all environmentalists, uh, which is, you know, sort of promotional text. Um, I mean, like clearly designed for the clicks uh, from, from, from the book. Although I think there's still some, you know, issues um, uh, with the book as well. But because the book certainly doesn't come across anywhere near as uh, sort of lukewarmist or even 
I mean, I hate, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the term climate denialism because it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a very clear reference to Holocaust denial. And that's, you know, a very clear category of, of uh, you know, uh, very, of, of deep badness. Uh, and um, I mean, however much I may disagree with people who are climate skeptics, I, you know, I, I'm, they're not in the same category as, as neo-Nazis. So whether we're talking about sort of lukewarmism or climate skepticism, I would prefer to use, I think the, the book itself, it doesn't do that. He, he absolutely acknowledges the reality of anthropogenic global warming, uh, whereas you wouldn't really sort of know that from the, or you wouldn't know that as much from the, um, from the article. At least that's, I really liked the book in many ways. I mean, that there's, I would say I, um, I think 70% of it is excellent. Uh, 20% of it, it, I would, you know, I wouldn't put it quite that way. And then maybe 10%, I would like, say, well, that's, 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 that's very wrong. I guess that's where I'm, I'm at. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, I would say separate those two things that the, the article is, um, yeah, sort of promotional material. And I think that, I, that, I think that's a mistake, but the, the, there's lots of really great stuff in, in, in the book. You know, the, you know, the chapter where he's looking at the impacts of wind turbines on uh, birds and bats, particularly raptors and insects is, you know, it's a real tour de force. That's, that's, and particularly with respect to how the, uh, the, the wind companies uh, or the, the companies uh, producing, uh, putting together wind farms are basically, you know, they've taken a, a page out of the playbook of Merchants of Doubt with from, you know, the oil and gas companies who, you know, try to legally or otherwise try to stop uh, environmentalists from um, from telling the truth about their product, their commodity. And that's, you know, that's really dirty. And I hadn't, um, I mean, I'd heard some stuff around uh, wind turbines with respect to um, their impacts on on birds, uh, but I uh, I didn't quite know the extent of um, sort of corporate uh, malfeasance there. And that was... No, that's that's a great, that's a great, very, very important uh, piece of information to get across. And there's lots of examples of that in the book. So, so getting back, I think, to the overarching thesis of the book, you know, while not a climate skeptic, as you were saying, I guess some would level the charge of being climate complacent. Um, it seems like the, the clear argument is climate change is real, but it's not that big of a deal or it's not our most pressing environmental problem. And, you know, Schellenberger definitely created a lot of controversy with a statement around climate change not having made natural disasters worse. And, you know, he's gone on to explain that, you know, well, this is truthful based on the IPCC definition of natural disasters, you know, whose severity is measured in terms of loss of human life and property, and that this is different than, you know, climate change's impacts on extreme weather events. Certainly, I think, you know, when I first read it, and in terms of the lay public, when we hear about natural disasters, we're not defining them by a very narrow kind of IPCC definition, as as true as that definition is. Like, it, it really seems to me that Michael is really kind of trolling the environmental movement, and probably unnecessarily. And I'm not sure why. Like, what, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the the parts where I would say not that he was wrong, but that it's not the way that I would put it, because two, those two things are both true. It is it is both true that um, the impacts from uh, from from natural disasters um, in terms of mortality and mor- morbidity and they have declined radically over the last century, um, and 
natural disasters as as you say you know as ordinary people would understand them which is just you know natural <laughs> the, the, the um you know, hurricanes or whatever they have manifestly um uh, gotten worse on a range of different metrics both of those things are true and the other thing that i would say about uh, that is that just because um the impacts from natural disasters have declined radically over the last century doesn't mean that that will always be the case and that's something that he doesn't say and i think that's that's a that's a real problem. On the other hand, I mean, when active climate activists talk about natural disasters, we have to say, like, why is it that we care about them? And, and it sounds like a strange question, but uh, really, what is why seriously do we care about natural disasters? The reason we care about natural disasters is because their impact on humans, uh, their uh, the, you know deaths and loss of uh, you know, um, loss of property, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I guess we'd also say like the loss of a billion mammals in uh, in Australia is also, you know, sad for humans while not, not directly affecting our, our health per se. Yes, absolutely. That's a, but that's an, that, that's, a, I think, I, I mean, I have to be, we have to be, we have to be honest here and say that that's an aesthetic uh, concern, but it's a secondary concern. Mm -hmm. The primary concern at the end of the day is human, is, is, is human life. Um, and, and so, uh, the, the, this, this discourse around the, um, uh, the, re the, 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 impacts, the risk that, uh, that they pose and how that's declined over the last century does need to be part of the conversation. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in making that point, it did, you know, really made me more aware of, you know, adaptations and the importance of adaptations and the importance of, you know, industrialization and modernity and, you know, the building of hospitals and hurricane shelters and, and infrastructure and roads as a way to be able to handle, you know, the worsening impacts of, of, you know, extreme weather events and other stresses on a society. So I think that point is really valid, but I just felt like, for God's sakes, Michael, just, you could say this in a way that is not trolly or that, you know, gets your point across. Like, I feel like he kind of left out you know, or at least didn't stress, you know, and acknowledge that climate change is, is contributing and making extreme weather more extreme. And I really think he did that to, to sort of stoke controversy, which I don't know, I just I don't feel like it's terribly constructive. Like, I think he's trying to appeal to the right um, and, and more of a conservative base. But like, which is why why troll and alienate, you know, the environmental left as as annoying as it it can be in terms of, you know, elements of Malthusianism within it, et cetera. Yeah. I, um, I mean, my frustration, um, you know, I have exactly the same frustration here with, um, you know, was it a couple of years ago, I think there was, um, you know, some sort of early snowfall in, in, uh, some Southern U S state or something like that, you know, like October and Donald Trump, you know, uh, at the time tweeted, you know, so much for global warming, and then the rest of us uh, were saying, "Ah, dude, you you can't make any assessment about um, climate change based on a single event. Uh, it's the trend. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not single events, and that's totally true. But then we should be paying attention to that um, uh, that as well. And sometimes it is the case that um, our own team, um, team environment." Um, will do exactly the same thing as Donald Trump did there, where every single uh, um, natural disaster they will claim as um, a product of climate change. 
and you know that's that's equally dangerous um so yeah um i guess in terms of um why he's doing that i think that's the more um interesting question i don't know i'm not in in michael's brain um i think you've hit the nail on the head there by suggesting that it has something to do with like reaching out to conservatives and i'm i'm guessing here but i think maybe what he's done is he said he's given up on the on the left uh and the center and he is so sort of monomaniacal about uh nuclear power that he has decided that uh, this is the one thing that conservatives do support in terms of um, de decarbonization. Um, and um, so maybe he, he, there will be more success on the right than on the center and left. And that's the only thing I can I think that he's doing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty cogent argument. Um, you know, regarding the, the natural disasters thing, you know, he, he talked, you know, and I think that's very well backed up by the evidence that the number of deaths, you know, from hurricanes, from other weather related events has dropped, I think by 90%, again, because of improvements in infrastructure, et cetera, and, you know, weather prediction, you know, these kind of things, but he doesn't really talk about the concept of climate refugees, um, as an impact of, of climate change. And I'm not sure, you know, how solid the science is certainly there's been strong suggestions that the syrian you know refugee crisis and civil war had you know were majorly impacted by a long drought that they endured um but you know in talking with mark linus um you know a couple of weeks ago um and the the summary that he's done of of the ipc the most recent ipcc literature i mean there we're looking at large um areas that are heavily populated um which simply you know humans won't be able to withstand the heat stress um, of wet bulb temperatures, I think above, you know, 34.8 degrees or something, right? So like physically uninhabitable without living in a, in a bubble of air conditioning, which let's be honest, is probably not going to be available to, you know, the poor members of those societies. So, you know, I, I think Michael really um, diminished uh, the, this impact. In fact, there, there was one point where he's talking um, with an expert on, you know, rising sea levels in Bangladesh. And he says, yeah, people will have to move, but people are already kind of relocating to cities. So how is it any different? And I was just sort of like shocked by that because Michael really presents himself as a humanist and he tells, you know, very compelling stories about a woman in the Congo um, struggling with poverty and energy poverty in particular. But I was just like, you know, buddy, you're really being selective here and, and glossing over, you know, a pretty major issue, which is the, the climate refugee issue. I think to be fair to Michael, and if I, if I remember that particular sort of conversation, uh, let's say, I think he was basically trying to um, damp down the, tamp down the idea that that, that would be extinction level uh, uh, event. It's horrific, you know, climate, climate refugees on such a scale would be horrific, but it wouldn't be the end of civilization. So that's, at the same time, that is very real. And I would say that probably number one on my list of near to medium term climate risks uh, that I worry about significantly is exactly that. It's these, it's the heat stress. We already have uh, had in the last few years, just crazy temperatures in, uh, in India and in the Middle East, you know, hitting 50 degrees Celsius in some place, uh, which is, you know, unimaginable. 
And that's truly frightening. I mean, actually, honestly, that was one of the things that led me to write that essay for Jacobin in defense of air conditioning, which I just regularly some deep greens just um, used to troll me because like, ha, 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 how dare you support air conditioning? But, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a life-saving technology um, in those circumstances. So, yeah, no, I, I, I don't understand how you can diminish that. Except as 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 you know, I was saying before, and sort of glancing off your your idea that um, he's um, he's just trying to reach out to um, to the right. It's 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 a it's a it's a strategy, I think. Yeah. What he's doing there. I mean, certainly, yeah. It's on the air conditioning front. You know, as a medical professional who works in emergency medicine and has seen several heat waves, like air conditioning is absolutely vital, particularly to folks with mental illness, to elderly people, you know, who can't necessarily behaviorally regulate quite as well to seek colder shelter. People are just fucking poor and, and you know, live in shitty buildings that get too hot. Like, people fucking die from it. And it's really shitty and preventable. And, you know, I think it's very unforgivable to, to take such an attitude and sort of virtue signal about, about air conditioning. So. At the same time, and this goes back to uh, the, the rising sea levels in Bangladesh as well, is not, it's not just about whether we can adapt to it. And adapt, adaptation is absolutely crucial. Uh, we definitely don't have enough focus on adaptation compared to mitigation. And that's, uh, you know, certainly that was, that was a huge theme when I was working at the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. The director there was constantly harping on about how we desperately need to uh, get more serious about adaptation. At the same time, you know, saying that Bangladesh could just build up dikes um, and levees like um, uh, the Netherlands, and how, and he says in the book, you know, Bangladesh is actually already um, speaking to Dutch engineers to help them help them with this. To my mind, as as a progressive, I'm thinking, well, I suppose even if they can do that, that's going to be billions of dollars spent uh, just to maintain the current situation. And Bangladesh is one of the poorest countries in the world. Why can't they be, they should be spending that money not on, 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 uh, on coastal defense, but instead on education, hospitals, economic development, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's this sink of money that we are spending that we wouldn't otherwise need to spend. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, a big problem with Michael's central thesis is that, I mean, it's similar to Bjorn Lonberg's, I think, in that, you know, if we just kind of let capitalism and industrialization and modernization, you know, roll on, then that's the best way to deal and adapt to, to some of these climate issues. And while I think there's some truth in that in terms of, you know, a modern society is more capable of adaptation and minimizing deaths from disasters, you get into, you know, you get into a bit of a, a paradox where, you know, to sustain modernity while putting billions of dollars into just shoring up your, your you know, uh, eroding shorelines, like you don't necessarily have the money and the resources to keep your society going and to run your power plants and your hospitals. So, uh, you know, that, again, seems like a, a logical problem with, with, uh, with Michael's line of reasoning. Absolutely. And, and his his arguments that basically that you just need to uh, leave the free market. I mean, he doesn't expressly say this, but it, 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 it comes through. Uh, you know, he's sort of critical of, of, well, I wouldn't say he's critical of socialism. I would say that he basically is making this argument that particularly in the chapter on, you know, greed saved the whales, not Greenpeace. He lists all these different examples of, of decoupling that occurred just as a result of normal market mechanisms. 
And you know, this is a, the, the same problem that uh, Andrew McAfee makes, I think, in an otherwise very good book on on decoupling, where he he's you know he's very free market oriented uh, as well. And he was uh, he's he's I can't remember the name of the book at the moment. Basically, he. Uh, he is talking about how, again, listing all these examples where, um, as a result of the search for profit, there's been a, a raft of examples of, of, of decoupling. But the issue with uh, both McAfee and and, and Schellenberg is, and, and the, the critique that socialists have of of of, of, of capitalism with the free market is not that there aren't good things that happen. It's what do you do when something is bad but is still profitable. Um, what happens when that 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 good thing isn't uh, profitable? How do you how do you get around that? And you know we see the uh, the, the one of the greatest uh, environmental success stories, of course, is the uh, you know saving of the ozone uh, layer uh, through the Montreal Protocol, the the global treaty that banned CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons. Um, you know, roughly by mid century, we should. Uh, see um, uh, the uh, uh, that layer basically healed. Um, that wasn't the free market uh, left to its own devices. That was an intervention in the mar- in and against the market uh, by planning. Basically, it's you know a form of e- a species of economic planning there. And the the companies that were responsible for uh, the use or production of of, of those, you know, from fridges to hairspray, whatever, um, uh, they raged against that reg- that set of regulations and they lobbied and tried their darndest to, tr- uh, to prevent that from, from happening. Um, and the, f- the fundamental problems with eco-modernism uh, it, uh, in that, and I think when you interviewed um, John Jonathan Simons, uh, the author of uh, the book, uh, Eco-Modernism, um, where he makes this argument that eco-modernism should fundamentally be a, a social democratic uh, set of ideas. He said that you know it's probably a species, uh, it's probably a, an artifact of the, of the fact that eco modernism emerged in the United States, uh, which has a very very you know restricted Overton window um, in terms of discussions around um, uh, the public sector, public planning, economic planning, and, and so on and so forth. The the Breakthrough Institute, which I think does absolutely fantastic work, and uh, you know they're in um, um, Alex Trembath's um, review. Uh, critique of Michael Schellenberger's um, book. He basically, he, in that one, he also criticizes central uh, central planning because he sort of feels that Michael Schellenberger is defending a vision of you know conventional large uh, large scale deployment of, of nuclear as opposed to sort of small modular reactors or advanced nuclear. And even though Michael Schellenberg doesn't say this expressly in the book, the presumption there is that you would need some sort of sort of plan like France did in the uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. I've read that review by Alex, and and I, I I thought the real highlight was he was saying, you know, while Michael Schellenberger celebrates the massive and rapid nuclear buildouts in France and Sweden and Korea, for instance, he just neglects to mention that this was both a response to you know a precarious supply of fossil fuels. Uh, but more importantly, these were top-down, planned, government-backed initiatives. Um, and Michael Schoenberg just doesn't seem to want to go there. And I, I think you're right. It has to do with that Overton window and, you know, trying to build a new base of support on the right side of the political spectrum. Yeah. But even Alex, in, in, and, and, you know, I, I love Alex. And he, I, I, I consider him a friend. In that, uh, that very review, he's uh, criticizing central planning. Uh, written, and that 
article was written for the uh, National Review, which is a you know a conservative magazine itself. And uh, Alex makes reference to the original Eco-Modernist Manifesto in in it, uh, in the section in it where it says that we reject the 1950s fallacy of uh, central planning. Can you can you tell me what that is? I read that line and I, I haven't looked it up yet. You know, it's you know to switch gears here a little bit. Uh, there's some of the, the the fantastic work that's been done in the UK in the last few months on uh, on on COVID drugs and the uh, the trials of, to uh, to achieve that. I mean, this is wonderful. This is you know deeply humanist work that these people have been doing, and all of the scientists involved, all the clinicians involved, would say this would not have been possible uh, without Britain's socialized and centralized, um, uh, centrally planned um, um, uh, public healthcare system. You simply could not have done that in, in the United States. So again, this idea that the uh, that there's this myth of, of uh, or this fallacy of, of central planning, that's, I mean, it's, it's straight up wrong. <laughs> it's just all the evidence points in the other direction. And I really do think it, it uh, I think Jonathan Simons is right, that this is a hangover or an artifact of the fact that, that eco-modernism emerged in the United States. And so you have both uh, Michael Schellenberger's sort of uh, let the free market rip um, conclusions, and you have uh, the eco-modernist manifesto and, you know, Alex's article there, which also basically embraces the free market. And it's it's yeah i mean this is one of the reasons that i don't call myself an eco-modernist is that uh if you you absolutely have to have a role for the uh, for economic planning in the public sector mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i wanted to circle back to this issue of you know climate alarmism you know i i think we're we've hit a degree of uh increase in global average temperatures we're kind of just at the beginning really of feeling the impacts of climate change um the increase in CO2 has been pretty linear, but you know what we're looking at in terms of projected temperature rise is looking pretty exponential. And you know, I think Schellenberger is drawing a lot of his conclusions off of sort of what's happened so far. And it, it kind of reminds me a bit of the COVID situation where, you know, at the very beginning of you know, your first cases arriving, say just from travelers in the US or Canada, things things look okay, but this is an exponential process. And if you let it get out of control, it really, it can really rip, right? So, you know, this this seems like a pretty strong parallel to me. And like, I don't know, I, I asked Mark Linus last week a bit of an unfair question. Um, I asked him, you know, where on the spectrum he fits sort of between climate alarmism and climate complacency. And he, of course, pointed out that both those words were, you know, pejoratives, a little bit insulting. So, I mean... How do you like? How do you label yourself? Are you alarmed? Is there a better way to sort of describe your level of concern? Like, where where do you sit? So, as a both as a journalist and um, as a science journalist, um, I'm very committed to telling the truth, just to be accurate, uh, to be precise, and um, and some of my frustration. I mean, uh, some of my frustrations with what I would call the catastrophists rather than alarmists. Um, or the collapse porn addicts, to to use the uh, the, the part of the title of my first book, uh, is the inaccuracy or the exaggeration, uh, the doom mongering that the science doesn't support. I think at the upper end of things, I do like absolutely. There's some 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 real real concerns there that I part- I have particularly around the you know association of the rates of 
of changes in atmospheric chemistry with, uh, with previous mass extinction events. I mean, that's that's something that I find deeply, deeply, deeply disconcerting. And it's actually something that isn't often uh, brought up by uh, climate activists, that most of the, uh, the the five big previous mass extinction events were associated with um, significant changes in atmospheric chemistry. And, you know, the rate that we are putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is, you know, many thousands times faster than uh, some of these events with, and, and you know, Mark um, talked about it in um, that episode as well. These, these are enormous uh, catastrophic eruptions from within the earth uh, that are responsible for, for some of that. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at, at night. But you were mentioning, you're mentioning like the, the climate catastrophes. Um, that's a, I would say, yeah, I guess I would say along the lines of so Roger Hallam, the, um, one of the leaders of Extinction Rebellion, when he goes on, when he went on the BBC and said that, uh, you know, the scientists saying that 7 billion people will die within the next 10 years. No, that's not true. That's, so that's what I mean by uh, catastrophism. That, that, that isn't real. We have a responsibility to be, um, to be, uh, to be, to have a fidelity to what the facts say. Yeah, and I think I think beyond that, you know, you were mentioning kind of doomer culture, collapse porn culture. I mean, it's just it's not a politics that's terribly inspiring in terms of. I mean, it may it may inspire you to go out on the streets and make some noise, but it, it's not something that to me really leads towards constructive solutions and debate happening. No, there's tons of there's lots of evidence to suggest uh, you know in terms of psychological research um, and sociological research to suggest that. Quite the contrary, it um, it is incredibly counterproductive. People shut down, they sort of have an attitude of, oh well, I guess this is the end. Might might as well party up now, party it up now. Uh, there's nothing we can do. Um, um, yeah, no, and the uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, that was, you know, I found that very um, an- annoying because he didn't put in. Uh, sort of the contextualization of um, of uncertainty, of probability. Uh, I mean, he ch- very much cherry picked all of uh, the absolute worst possible um, outcomes, um, and then presented that as uh, that's uh, likely. And I think that was that was another example of catastrophism of collapse porn. Um, I think that uh, Mark Linus, however. He's he's absolutely loyal to the evidence. He doesn't exaggerate, and um, that's what we should be striving to be uh, to be doing in our um, our journalism about this. Uh, what scientists say about this? What activists say about this? Yeah, and I mean, I think he, the other strength of Mark Linus is he's you know very pragmatic in terms of suggesting solutions. Even though you know his last book. Um, didn't explicitly delve into that. You know, he's spent a lot of his writing career really, you know, again, with incredible scientific vigor, analyzing, you know, what are the the best responses to the various ecological challenges we face. Um, I wanted to circle back, because you mentioned Ro- Roger Hallam, um, you know, which in terms of climate alarmism or climate catastrophism, the strategy and tactics of Extinction Rebellion, Rebellion have always seemed a bit obnoxious and counterproductive to me. I mean, like my motto is afflict the comfortable and and comfort the afflicted. And many of Extinction Rebellion's actions were, I guess, you know, pretty broadly disruptive rather than going after the political and corporate elites making, you know, afflicting the comfortable. And the most glaring example was 
uh, when Extinction Rebellion activists glued themselves to the London tube, you know, this, this subway, the mass public transportation, probably the, the lowest carbon way to get around the city. Um, and they just, you know, they got their asses kicked. Um, and they, you know, it just, it did not seem terribly effective to me. You know, when, when I did speak with Zion Lights um, a couple weeks ago, who, who recently left Extinction Rebellion um, to join Michael Schellenberger's nuclear advocacy group, Environmental Progress, um, you know, she said she was proud of elements of her past with Extinction Rebellion. She said that, you know, um, after Extinction Rebellion's big protest, I guess it was a series of weeks or maybe a month, you know, it really did put climate change front and center in the political discourse in the UK. And she said a concrete example was that prior to Extinction Rebellion's activism, you know, when the BBC or mainstream media would hold a panel on climate change, they would, they would always have a climate skeptic there to sort of give that sort of fair and balanced media take. And, and that was something that she really credited um, Extinction Rebellion's activism to. I don't know if that's really true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do watch uh, British um, television uh, regularly and... Um, that was something more, that was something that really happened in the United States, not really in the UK. Um, and even in the United States, that sort of uh, presentation of, um, you know, balance, so-called balance, uh, presenting a uh, climate scientist next to a climate skeptic, that also hasn't really happened for maybe a decade or so, even in the United States, perhaps even longer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Are there any other examples of kind of alarmist activism that you see accomplishing anything major? That was a long si- that was a long <laughs> silence. <laughs> I just think that we need to have a sober, urgent, evidence based um, uh, approach to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I, yeah, I think it's a strategic uh, a strategic mistake to 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 exaggerate, to lie. Um, you know, you just all that you're doing there is you're opening up the door for climate skeptics. And oil and gas companies do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, they can say, listen, <laughs> 6 billion people haven't died in the last 10 years. So, you know, you guys are way out to lunch. I definitely, definitely see that and, tendency. You know, Michael Schellenberger um, gives some good examples of that uh, in terms of the history of the anti-nuclear movement, where he talks about um, anti-nuclear activists sort of ginning up um, questions around radioactivity or nuclear waste, even as some of them did knew that this wasn't true. Um, it's, it's dishonest. It's really, whoever does it, it's absolutely dishonest. We on the left are always very clear um, when that happens on the right, that uh, when the, the right engages, the corporations engage in sort of um, lies and, and um, suppression of the truth, um, muscling of scientists. Um, I think we should be just as critical when our team does it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, um, this ties in a little bit to the, the issue of nuclear. Um, a big part of Michael's book is exposing uh, the funding links of environmental groups with fossil fuel companies and magnates and billionaires like Tom Strayer um, and Bloomberg. Um, I think recently most environmental groups have distanced themselves from actual fossil fuel companies, but certainly take a lot of money from from these magnates. Um, Schellenberger suggests that much of the environmental movement's anti-nuclear advocacy directly benefits fossil fuel companies. Like you, you know, you take a 
reactor like Indian Point offline, and right now they're substituting it with natural gas. Um, is this? Do you think this is a conspiracy theory, or do you think that there's um, this is a very logical argument that Michael's making? Oh no, I, I think he's I think he's absolutely right. Um, a few years ago, an editor um, asked me. Um, he said, you know, would, would it be worth your while to look into all these sort of rumors that we hear every now and then about um, sort of colluding between um, uh, fossil fuel interests and variable renewable interests, particularly uh, sort of natural gas, uh, so, uh, so the role the natural gas is, uh, industry has played in sort of supporting um, uh, renewables, knowing that the Variable renewables aren't, uh, variable renewables are, are by definition intermittent. Uh, there is no possible, everybody knows that there's no possible way that you could have 100% variable renewables. Natural gas, therefore, will always have a role to play. So it's a way to keep natural gas alive. Um, and I said to him, I said, you know, I've heard those, I said to my editor, I said, you know, I've heard those rumors too. I've, I've, I've seen bits and pieces here and there. Uh, some of it is pretty thin on the ground. Uh, some of it's accurate, but it it's not a sort of gotcha moment. Um, it's not a smoke. There's no real sort of smoking gun. I and I said, I mean, I I'd be very interested in looking into it, but that's sort of like a six month investigative journalistic project. Um, so you'd have to be able to pay me to go off and do that digging. Um, and at the end of it, you have to be okay with the fact that I might not actually discover anything. And uh, they didn't have the cash for that, so that 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 article didn't didn't come out but michael Re- schellenberger really seems to have have done that i mean that chapter particularly the stuff around jerry brown is pretty damning um i mean uh yeah i think he's he went off and he's 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 done that and you can almost tell in, in the fact that that chapter is is so dense in terms of the story of uh, of jerry brown uh, and his family and the corruption there uh, with respect to um, uh, shutting down nuclear um, in order to support his um, his family's um, natural gas interests uh, is, you know, it's so detailed uh, compared to the rest of the book, where a lot of the rest of the book is, um, it's, it's, um, there's sort of, you know, sweeping arguments and, and uh Lots of narrative flourishes, whereas this is that chapter is just it's almost like a legal brief yeah. where the, and this happened and this happened and this happened. I mean, I think it's interesting how you know organizations, environmental organizations like Greenpeace and the Sierra Club, you know, when you do um, population surveys and ask them on sort of trustworthiness of various institutions, um, these groups, you know, pretty much universally rank very high in terms of um, of trustworthiness. And I think we're seeing kind of over and over again with, for instance, ties to fossil fuel um, interests and serious funding, like in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars going to these groups or in the ways in which they have, you know, cherry picked the science in terms of their uh, attacks on genetic engineering or, you know, some of the, you know, in terms of methodologically, just absolutely laughable studies, which they have um, funded and promoted on, for instance, the Chernobyl accident, which again, in a previous um, interview, Jerry, Jerry Thomas really devastates. Um, do, you, do you think that there's going to be a shift in terms of people's, people's perceptions um, of, of environmental groups? I mean, I, I'm, I, 
I don't have any studies in front of me. I don't have the studies that you're sort of referring to there in terms or polls showing people's trust. Um, I think they've, um, it depends who we're talking about. I think that there's a lot of working class communities that have a deep suspicion of these groups. Um, uh, but I definitely think that uh, some of these stories like Michael is telling about um, about the collusion with you know fossil fuel interests uh, need to be told. And similarly, with the genetic engineering stuff, I mean, we have to, like, it's just not true that, um, the, um, you know, the Monsantos, et cetera, of the world, not that Monsanto exists anymore, it's now Bayer, um, are these huge corporate behemoths that, like, control governments or, you know, puppet master. It's quite the, it's quite the other way around in, in this case, where, you know, um, it, the, the, the Greek groups really have, um, sort of ca- in the in the European in- uh, European Union in- uh, uh, case, um, where there's been a sort of um, regulatory capture there uh, by uh, by the white hatted um, uh, lobbyists, the the Greenpeaces and the Friends of the Earths and so on and so forth, and um, you know GMOs for all intents and purposes, there's a de facto ban on on them within Europe, um, and so. You know anybody who's engaged in that sort of research has has has, has left Europe uh, for the United States or Canada or or, or Asia uh, to be able to continue their research, and um, that's you know that's ju- that's a, that's a res- the responsibility of a handful of um, um, environmental organizations. I think a lot of people are incredulous at the strength of these organizations, and they just you know they just don't believe that they could have such a you know an impact on policy. Um, another another thing that um, Michael Schellenberger addresses in the book is the pressure that um, green parties and, and environmentalist groups have put on development banks, for instance, to not loan money to developing countries for you know hydro infrastructure, for instance. And he really laments that in the context of people you know burning their forests down essentially for energy, choking and you know three rock cooking fires. Um, because, you know, the, the Greens and, and these environmental organizations really, again, I think based on romantic ideas, believe that that this is, you know, this is a good thing environmentally. Um, yeah, that's, that's another really great uh, section of the book, that, which, as you, you call it, eco-imperialism. I don't think Michael uses that term, but it, that's basically what it is. And you're right. It is, it is absolutely another example of, um, of environmentalist or NGO um, capture, regulatory capture, or policy capture. We think we have this idea that the, the green groups are these sort of Davids against the corporate uh, Goliaths, but you know they're Goliaths too. Uh, these are in, in some cases multi-billion-dollar operations um, that um, that need to maintain themselves. Lee, I think we're going to try and um, wrap things up in the next few minutes. Um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Um, you know, if there's any other elements of the book that you you wanted to touch on that you thought were you know, I think we've we've done a, a pretty um, harsh job of bashing some of uh, Michael's uh, you know attacks on on alarmism um, and and some of his rhetorical flourishes, which you know seemed more um, you know the goal of stoking up publicity and selling more books. Um, we've highlighted some some good elements, but yeah, do you have any other um, parts of the book that you wanted to address? I think the more interesting thing there, I mean, I think we pr- covered it uh, pretty comprehensively there. I think the more interesting thing there is, is this, the, what the book has done and the, the article that you wrote has done and some of the other articles, which are al- along a similar line. Um, it has sort of opened up a sort of 
you know, division within the eco-modernist community about what is the appropriate strategy for trying to achieve its aims. And I, you know, I, I wasn't, I was, I have no idea what happened with um, the, the Breakthrough Institute and Michael Schellenberger and why he left to found environmental progress. I think that there is some bad stuff that happened, but I have no idea what it was. Um, and I can only guess that uh, it's a strategic, uh, it's, it's a difference over strategy. And it does seem to be the case that not that, as you say, that he, Michael Schellenberger's done this to sell more books. I think he wants to sell more books in order to achieve his strategy. And the strategy does seem to be uh, to uh, give up on the left, give up on the center, um, it's counterproductive in many ways. It's taking the wrong uh, conclusions on deindustrialization, degrowth, uh, anti-nuclear, anti-GM, um, organic, uh, small-scale agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the right, for all of their very many problems, um, does get it right on the on the, the technologies that are needed. And so he's, he's, uh, he, I, it seems to be the case that he's put his, all of his eggs in that basket of trying to win over Republicans and other conservatives, uh, to a pro nuclear position. Um, and you know, it was, it, will that work? I don't think it's not a strategy I would recommend, but I, I, I guess I have some level of sympathy for it in the God damn it! Yeah, of course, one, the one can get easily frustrated with with the left's positions on environmental issues, um, but I think it's a grave error. I think it's um, because at the end of the day, it comes back to this question about uh, economic planning and the free market. But we're um, we're kind of those, we're kind of longing for a bygone era of the left here because. You know, on on the modern left, I don't even know whether to call it the left, but I mean, there's all these ideas of microgrids and doing super small scale things and, you know, very kind of libertarian ideas about disconnecting from society. You know, my energy system, I'm wealthy enough to own a home, so I'll put some solar panels on it, put a huge Tesla wall battery. And I mean, these are these are kind of antisocial from an energy policy perspective. Absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, the strategy that I would recommend, and this is one, again, I'm not an eco-modernist. I think the, 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 the solution is classic socialist or social democratic socialist or social democratic um, um, uh, strategy. Um, that's, and you get the working class on side, um, a Green New Deal, but a Green New Deal that is, is of the working class, not for the working class. It's not condescending towards them. That actually goes and speaks to trade union, uh, trade union, uh, leaders and um, uh, workers on the shop floor within the energy sector uh, to uh, to come up with uh, a genuine um, uh, worker-led in infrastructure um, uh, planning scheme, um, uh, a Tennessee Valley Authority sort of uh, perspective. Uh, that's that's the real solution. So I reject both the um, sort of center-left. Um, uh, eco-modernist approach, center center left approach of uh, still being very uh, pro free market, and, and basically sort of the I don't know the Clintonian let's see the, the Clintonian eco-modernism, um, or Blairite eco-modernism you could you could call it, um, and the sort of uh, full bore let's go uh, for the right the the Republican uh, strategy of uh, of Michael Schellenberger. Both of those things I think are mistakes. I think that the real way to achieve what we want to be doing is, you know, as Jonathan Simon says, it's a, it's necessarily a uh, a social democratic at a minimum um, uh, project. 
Um, Michael Schellenberger, maybe he will get a whole bunch of Republicans to suddenly sign on to uh, um, a real commitment to uh, to uh, nuclearization, or de de deep decarbonization through nuclearization. But the minute that um, uh, the the question of how much there's going to be spent on that, those same Republicans will balk at uh, at the the taxes in, uh, required to deliver on that, the boring to to deliver on that. So it's 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 a dead end. It's a dead end strategy. I couldn't agree with you more, Lee. Um, I think we'll wrap it up for there. Um, but again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and uh, I look forward to having you back. Um, I know we have some discussions outside of book reviews to uh, to get through. So um, yeah, absolutely, Lee. Thanks again for coming on. Happy to be here. I'm sorry I was so sleepy today. <laughs> no worries. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.